the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Imagine this. America Day, as we speak, has $100 billion in student loan debt. $90 billion outstanding in automobile loans. You look at some of the prices coming out of Detroit and elsewhere, not surprised. $50 billion in credit card debt. And consumer debt overall, this is unsecured debt, $3.2 trillion. I guess it's no surprise, therefore, that 65% of divorce decrees in the United States today are because of finances. At the end of the day, irresponsible money management is something that we all learn. Well, if that be the case, then how can we have the talk, the conversation with our children so that we learn them properly when it comes to money management. Joining me now is Scott and Bethany Palmer, authors of The Five Money Conversations to Have with Your Kids at Every Age and Stage. And Scott and Bethany, welcome to both of you. Well, thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Now, I'm curious with your own family. um, What prompted you to decide and at what age that this was a conversation you needed to have with the kids? Well, that's a great question. Um, for the really last 10 years, Bethany and I have been working with couples all over the world when it comes to love and money and the conversations that we need to have as couples. And we were constantly getting asked, well, how do we talk to our kids about this? Um, we're actually the creators of something called the five money personalities, and we have a pretty amazing assessment online for individuals and couples to take to be able to understand who they are and what their money personalities are. And so we were being constantly asked, how do we deal with our kids and how do we deal with our kids? So that put us on a journey to really figure out and try to understand what what we're dealing with. We have currently a 14-year-old and a 12-year-old, so or 11-year-old. So we're in the middle of this whole parent thing. And, and what we found in kind of the way that we made our book really applicable to parents is that we found that every age is a little different. So really, starting at age five, we need to start having conversations with our kids. And what we found between the ages of five and 12 is when kids become entitled. Then you jump into the teenage years. And between 13 and 17 is when we can, and a lot do, teach their kids to be materialistic. 
And then what we found, 18 and beyond, 18 to 25, but, you know, we've got literally 35-year-olds still living in mom and dad's basement, is that 18 to 25 is when they become what we call financially dependent. And so we're dealing with three different age groups. We're dealing with different conversations that need to take place in those age in those different ages because we're really addressing three different major issues which every parent is facing. Yeah, and this seems to be, Bethany, so obvious in the sense that I think all parents recognize early on that their child's personalities are, are shaped and, and molded. Part of that is a product of environment and their own personalities and so forth. So if their overall personality is developed at such an early age, why not their personality, quote unquote, related to money or how they how they grow up viewing money, relating to money and and uh, the role that money p- plays in their lives? Well, it's interesting. God talks about money more than just about any other subject in the Bible because he knew how much it was going to impact us every day. A lot of times people think money just impacts us on our financial planning, making sure we have our insurance and retirement, investments and taxes and estate planning all taken care of. Those are all very important. But what the truth of the matter is, is you have everyday decisions that you have to make very quickly when it comes to money. Simple things like, are you going to go out to eat? Uh, or or bag or brown bag your lunch. Are you going to go to and get an expensive cup of coffee, or are you going to brew it at home? And our children are going to be and are starting at very young ages dealing with the same exact thing. And so what has what we have found is that it can be such an encouragement to children to really understand their perspective of money, which we have we can talk about here and flesh this out a little bit. We can. We say with our whole heart, we know that God made our money personalities. Are they impacted by our parents? Yes, but but the way we look at money, and we have some examples we can share here in a little bit, but with that being said, we as parents better understand our own children's two money personalities, and then with that in mind, how encouraging it is to have these conversations. Because everybody knows what kind of conversations maybe you should have, but how do you have them in a way that your children will hear them and not re- rebel against them? Well, and maybe even a bigger sort of preliminary question for parents, and this, uh, Scott, I imagine is a difficult one for, well, perhaps not all parents, certainly a good percentage of them based on the statistics I cited a moment ago, and that is, you know, every parent is nervous about the time coming when they have to have the talk. Now, usually that's birds in the bees. Talk. Yeah, and, and, and the birds and the bees talk, I would imagine for some parents, might even come easier, and I, and I, I phrase it that way, Scott, for this reason. Having the conversation with your children about money, their money personality, their relationship to money, and what that's going to look like when they move into their adult life, uh, doesn't it require some introspection in terms of of the parent getting a handle on their own money personality? Because let's face it, there are spenders and there are savers, and you walk through all of these different money personalities. Well, what happens when you're a parent trying to sit down with um, your child and lecture he or she? on what it means to be a saver when, in fact, the one doing the lecturing is a dyed-in-the-wool, card-certified spender. Well, I mean, that, that is a great point because what, what often happens is we naturally try to make our kids like our money personality is. And so if you're, by chance, let's say maybe you're a, uh, you're a primary, we have two money personalities, but let's say you're a primary saver 
and your kid is a primary spender, you're always going to be making comments like, you know, well, that money just burns a hole in your pocket within a matter of minutes, or you need to have a savings plan. And part of what we tried to do with our book was say, hey, how do you talk when your money personalities are different than your kids? And, and even more importantly, how do you talk to your kids when maybe you've made some money mistakes? Because we've all made money mistakes, but I think everybody listening would agree those are great learning opportunities, too, for our kids. If we can say, hey, listen, this is what your mom and I did. Ended up being a bad, a bad decision that we made, but this is how we corrected it, and this is how we got out of it. Because when you start having those conversations, and when you start not only speaking to their money personality, but also being vulnerable with where you've succeeded and where you've failed, that's where really the communication can begin. And I think often what happens is we think as parents we're supposed to just, you know, give this huge amount of wisdom to our children and they're just going to look at us in awe and be like, wow, mom and dad really have all this money stuff figured out. It's not going to happen. Let me give you an example. Um, my, I have a son who is a primary spender. And so we don't use, we don't even use words like um, save money. We have a future spending plan set up for him. That's the kind of language that he is going to understand. And, you know, I think of um, my relationship with my mom, and we could not be a more opposite side of the spectrum. I'm a primary spender and secondary risk taker. So I'm kind of on that spender risk taker side. She is on the totally other side of the spectrum. She's a saver security seeker. And we butted heads so much growing up because those little money decisions would come up. Like perfect example, I was a competitive swimmer, nationally ranked swimmer. Swimming was a big part of my life. And my coach told me that I needed to get this new swimsuit. And my mom gave me, I mean, it was expensive. And my mom just gave me the biggest, made the biggest deal out of that. It really, in retrospect, wasn't that much money, but to her it was because she's a saver and savers, I mean, that you can never save enough money for a saver. And so really it made me feel like I wasn't worth buying that swimsuit. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of, we, cannot, we can be unintentional consequences of not understanding your child's money personalities is you are putting them down, squelching them of who they are and how they've been uniquely made and you don't even know it. And that's where the challenge is, is, you know, parents think, oh, well, I need to teach them this or that. But if you're teaching them in a way that they can hear it, that they can relate to it, that it makes sense to them because of the way that they were uniquely made and the way that they perceive money, you know, we all, we all, not all of us have a real healthy relationship when it even comes to money. You know, money is something that, that we work with and we talk about like I said, a little bit every single day. And if we don't have ourselves figured out and then we don't understand our children, we're do like I said, unintended consequences are happening and really impacting our, our relationships with our children. On today's edition of Lifeline, a look at the five money conversations to have with your kids at every age and every stage. By the way, we've got four complimentary copies of the book we're going to be giving out here coming up just momentarily. Meanwhile, we'll take a pause, get you updated on some traffic. When we come back, if it's true that opposites attract, how problematic can that be for not only children, but eventually when they grow up to be adults in married life. We'll get to that part of the equation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Welcome back to the conversation. Scott and Bethany Palmer with us today. They're known as the Money Couple. We're talking about their latest book, The Five Money Conversations to Have with Your Kids at Every Age and Stage. And let's talk about this notion of opposites attract. We always hear that when it comes to relationships. And I'm wondering how problematic is that certainly later in life when, you know, as you were suggesting before the break, Bethany, uh, boy, you get a husband and wife team together and one is the spender risk taker combination. The other is the saver security seeker, wow, that can really <laughs> create quite a firestorm. That and you're I, not kidding. And, oh, and I would imagine the earlier in life the kids recognize who they are, what their personality looks like, the easier it will be later in life, relationally speaking, to deal with all that. You know, it is so true. You know, we always say, Scott and I always say, opposites attract, but then you get married and opposites attack. And the problem is when the money conversations come up or, or decisions that you need to make about money, money um, that decisions that you need to make that involve money, that's where the problems happen. And then they, the conflict happens all the time. The more opposite you are, the more challenges you're going to have. And you are so correct. If you can understand this as a young child, it's so fun. Our, our children starting at age seven is when they started to really understand what their money personalities and say things to us like, like, Mom, you're a risk taker, so don't you want to do that? You know, it's amazing to us how at such young age, how kids can learn these things and think about how uh, the next generation of marriages, how much healthier they can be because they understand this. Now, we're not saying that you can't marry your opposite, because most of the time we're attracted to it. As a matter of fact, oftentimes it makes you a better person. It's a more exciting relationship. The, the thing is, though, is if you realize this, and then when those challenges come up, you know where they're coming from, and you're not putting the person down, you're, you're, you're trying to deal and understand their many personalities. Now, now, some listening right now might be thinking, well, this, this makes sense, okay, so it, it, there's not a prohibition against it, but probably life would be easier if instead of marrying the opposite, we married the equal. But I have to wonder, Scott, if that is not, we're out with problems as well. For example, if you get two spender risk takers together, my goodness, that's <laughs> that's going to mean there's never any money in the house. Or that's right. That's right. They, they will instantly help that $3. trillion dollars. <laughs> yes, in, it in will. Your debt. So yeah, yep, and, and that's right. that's a great point mm -hmm. that um, we need to make. We we do a lot of uh, premarital counseling with couples, and sometimes they'll take the money personality assessment. And they'll be like, we have four money personalities. Are we going to survive? And we say, absolutely, because really those differences can really become your strengths inside your relationship. The spender, if they're married to a saver, they both have really positive points of their money personality and really negative points of their money personality. But if they can get those money personalities in balance, if they can learn, okay, this is why and how I personally deal with money, and here's my relationship with money. Oh, and now I have this other person, and they have a different relationship with money. So not only are they getting themselves in check, but they're also understanding who their spouses are. That's how they can really have a really healthy, what we call a money healthy relationship. And what we find is that couples that get married that have the same money personalities are much, are much more less likely to argue. Bethany and I's primary money personalities are both spenders. So if she goes and spends money, uh, we don't usually have an argument about that or tension. 
Where our tension hits is that she's a risk taker and I'm a security seeker. Secondarily. Secondarily. So we have the opportunity. That's where we have conflicts. And so it's just really important to know that uh, what those money personalities are because your kids are going to be modeled how you communicate about money. And that's really important to understand. The kids are watching everything. We've had about 60,000 people take this assessment online. And of that 60,000, the, the percentage of married couples that took it, 80% of those had an opposite dynamic in their relationship. So 80% of the married couples that we surveyed had a, a different opposite money personality. So you, you talk about a, a 65% divorce rate. Actually, what we found is statistically the divorce rate is between 48 and 55%, depending on who you're using. But 70% of all divorces, the number one reason that was listed was conflicts over money. And so when we That's found something. that 80% of, of couples were married to their money opposite, we weren't surprised at all mm -hmm. with that 70%. So here's the great thing. Here's the encouraging thing. The encouraging thing is that you can succeed in a relationship. That once you understand who you are, you've got a much better chance of understanding who your spouse is. And once you have a much better chance of understanding how your spouse is, then you can get on the same page and you can have an amazing family that understands that open communication about money is good. Mom and dad don't always see eye to eye about money, but they know how to communicate about it. And then your kids can trust. And this and also means that we have a greater degree of responsibility, don't we, as parents, in the sense that, you know, we're typically thinking about providing them with a good moral foundation. We take them to church. We make sure that they get a decent education, prepare them for life, things of that sort. But it makes the money talk, apparently, Scott, all that more important, because what you're really doing is setting a foundation, not only for that child's economic health and well-being later on, in life, but their marital health and well-being as well. So now all of a sudden, conversations over um, allowances, for example, and do you get it or do you earn it, that suddenly becomes a very important discussion. Absolutely. And, and what we find is, uh, what we have found is that often parents exclude their, their conversation um, about allowance. So what you've really got really to figure out is your kid's money personality so that you have so that, that you have the opportunity to speak into them. So, for instance, my 11-year-old um, is a primary spender. And at about the age of, of um, eight, what we decided we would do as a family with allowances, really from five to eight, five to nine, we didn't, uh, we gave them an allowance, and now they earn their money. And so the cool thing that we created for, for parents, because we were like kind of trying to figure out, okay, how's the best way to make... A, a decision or figure out how who our kids' money personalities are. So what we did was we started looking at all these different age groups. We started coming up with questions and we started watching the kids to help parents figure out how to assess their children when it came to their money personalities. So like a big one was Easter candy. We watched how kids interacted with their Easter candy. Some saved it, some consumed it quickly, some traded it, some had a plan on their consumption, and some gave it to their friends. Each of those ways of dealing with candy is a reflection of their money personality. So what we did um, with the five conversations to have with your kids at every age and stage was we put a code on the back of the book, and we actually created a money personality assessment from 5 to 12. We created a separate money personality assessment for 13 to 18, and we created another money personality assessment for 18 and beyond. 
And so parents can actually buy the book, scratch off the foil um, on the back of the book, and you get five assessments per book, five free assessments per purchase of the book. So you can actually sit down with your kids, take, watch them take the assessment. Five to 12-year-olds need a little bit more directions. The teenagers take the ball and run. No problem. And the 18 and beyond take the ball and run. And it will actually give you their money personalities. Then what you can do is you can look at the, the conversations that we outline in the book. Okay, so let's talk about allowance. How do you talk about allowance to a spender? How do you talk about allowance to a saver? How about a risk taker? How about a flyer? How about a security seeker? So we actually help parents based on the kids' money personalities talk about things like allowance, extracurricular activities. Um, for our teenagers, yeah, the give me's for the little ones. For our teenagers, technology, I mean, the peer pressure behind having the perfect clothes, having the perfect technology, being in every extracurricular activity that you can possibly come up with. So we actually help parents talk to their kids but you're actually speaking the child's language. And, and you know what I love about this is there, there, there's a stroke, a stroke of genius here, uh, <laughs> Bethany and Scott. There really is because parents today are beginning to realize, for example, in the arena of discipline, right. uh, that it needs to be unique to the child's personality. Some yeah. parents understand yep. you have a child and simply sending them to bed without dinner does not yep. get the message through. Right. And yet another child with whom you discipline by saying, I'm taking away the car keys, no, you can't go to the movies this weekend, or we're locking up your video game, may work for some children, may not work for others. Absolutely. So this, this, this one-size-fits-all approach that we've tried to do when it comes to parenting, particularly as it relates to money, I think the clear results of how, how much it's not working is in the divorce rates that we spoke of earlier. It's in the amount of consumer indebtedness that we have and the manner in which not only we we manage money as a people but listen 17 heading toward 18 trillion dollars debt want to tell you something there too and you know let's let's talk after the break about the whole issue for example of how we handle at the earliest ages your allowance now when i was growing up my dad had a bit of a philosophy when it came to allowance um he said that uh he was going to take sort of a, an approach that would help me hopefully someday grow up to be a Roosevelt Democrat. And by that, he meant that you got money from the government, but you had to work for it. That's as opposed to a Johnson Democrat, where you get money from the government, you're entitled to it. We'll take a time out, talk a bit more about the whole issue of money personalities and how to have those five money conversations with your kids. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to the conversation. Scott and Bethany Palmer with us tonight. They are the money couple, the new book, Five Money Conversations to Have with Your Kids at Every Age and Every Stage. We're talking about, quite frankly, how to prevent in large part a huge disaster once they get older adults, whether it be an impact on their finances or ultimately on their marriage, understanding your child's unique money personality and then being able to educate your child based on that personality is really the key of what we're speaking about today and and one of the ways in which of course that can and should be done is this whole matter of Bethany and Scott of the way we teach our kids the value of money through their allowance now as I mentioned dad had the belief that he wanted me to be a Roosevelt Democrat he thought that it was okay if I got money from him the government as he formed it Uh, but I had to work for it 
And, of course, the issue of entitlement today is a major problem in our society. So how do we go about managing the whole issue of allowances based on chi- our child's unique money personality? Well, it's that's a really great question. And let's just start with just the overall approach and what we're trying to accomplish. What we're trying to accomplish is having our children understand the basic concepts of, of money, how much it's worth, and how to, to and where to spend it or to save it. And so what one of the things that we've discovered is that if you teach children at a very young age, it's, I mean, you can start as, as young as three, and you just give them $3 a week. They don't have to work for it yet. You just give them $3 a week. And with these $3, they have to put, they have three bins, if you will, $1 in to save, $1 in to spend, and $1 in to give. And giving is to charity or your church. And what happens is you want to train those neurons, if you will, those giving neurons and those saving neurons and those spending neurons, and you want to train them at a very young age that that money is something that you do something with and you need to be intentional with it. So again, at a very young age, not connected with chores, just you just give it to them. Again, to train that a third, a third, a third. Now, once they turn like right around eight or nine, it depends on the child and how mature they are. Now what you do is they start earning it. And the way that they earn it, and this is where as parents, you have to sit down and make a list of things that are above and beyond normal everyday chores. I don't know about you, but I think there are some, a lot of things that you do around your household that's just part of being a family. I mean, you don't get paid for it. It's just, you got a roof over your head. This is what we do as a family to keep this house running. But if you're creative as a parent, you know, maybe it's cleaning out a pond or it's um, cleaning up a walkway or it's pulling, you know, excessive amounts of weeds or I don't know, you can just be very creative as parents and you come up with additional activities and things that they do that now they earn that money. A great example is um, our child, we had something that that he was doing and we told him that this particular job was going to be worth $5. Well, I mean $10. But you know what? He didn't work hard. And, you know, he's getting into those teenage years and starting to just kind of mosey around and go real slow. And I'm like, nope, sorry, all right, paid just got docked, five bucks. And he's like, what? And he's like, so you're using money to show they're earning money. They're not just getting it. They're earning it. But here's the wonderful thing. Now they've earned it. But you know what their first reaction is? Because you train those neurons, they take any money they earn, and they put a third in to spend, a third in to give and a third into safe because those neurons have been cha- trained. Then once they start to earn money through their jobs, when they start to get to be 16, you know, 17, 18, they get that money and they start doing that same thing because that's just what's ingrained in them. So taking it in ages and stages and not being, there's so many parents we see, well, I didn't have to, I had to work for any money that I got. And, you know, just having these, you know, putting our childhood into it. Listen, parenting has changed. Times have changed. There's so much more that our children can buy now than they used to be able to. And if we aren't intentional with this and using and inside of our home being the training ground for this, we're going to raise a whole nother generation that doesn't understand money. 
And this is absolutely key and crucial. So we are just excited to see so many parents applying this approach and just seeing great results, great results. And let's say you start late. Let's say you have a 15-year-old and you haven't done any money management, you haven't talked about money at all, and da-da-da-da. You know what? It is never too late to start. And if you want to tell your 15-year-old, here's three bucks, and you're going to take a third, they'll be perfectly happy to take it. But you'll be, again, training that, those neurons to save, spend, and give. We appreciate the insights today, and I, I think for parents getting this conversation started, uh, Bethany, is critically important. And, and again, part of this is going to go back to the heart of not just wanting to be good parents and give our children the proper foundation necessary to be not only economically successful, but as we've suggested today, relationally successful as they grow up in life. I guess then that leads to the other important question, and that is, uh, where do we start? Uh, how, how do we go about Getting this dialogue started, understanding their personalities, and, you know, if you have six kids, you may wind up with an an interesting combination of different money personalities there. And then, of course, at the same time, you know, teaching our kids things like the art of compromise and, and the dangers of entitlement and the connection between risk and reward. How do we start this conversation, Scott? Yeah, well, the, the first thing is go get the book <laughs> because the book out just outlines everything so easy for parents. We did not want this to be a complicated, hyper-involved book. We wanted to be able to have parents say, oh, okay, I've got, a, I've got an 8-year-old and I have a 17-year-old, and to be able to bounce around the book and really use it as a resource. The great thing about the book is that when you get the book, you can scratch off the code and back, and it gives you those five different money personality assessments that you can have your kids take right away. So it's knowledge, ten minutes. Yeah, it's not ten minutes long. at the most. Um, knowledge is power, and if we can just take some time to get to know our kids, we're going to be able to have the conversations that they're going to be able to hear. So I'd say, you know, you can get the book at major booksellers. Um, it's in Christian bookstores all over the place, and it's called the Five money conversations to have with your kids at every age and stage. If parents want to know what their money personalities are, they can go to themoneycouple.com and they can take that assessment for free. Now that assessment is only going to be for free for about another two or three weeks um, before we start charging for that assessment. But if parents want to know who they are so that they can understand where maybe they're seeing differently uh, than their kids are when it comes to money. We've still got that at themoneycouple.com. It's a free assessment. It'll take you 10 minutes, and you can you know, buy the, buy the five money conversations to have with your kids right there as well. Excellent. And the book is available through, I guess, the usual suspects, Amazon, and directly through your website as well. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And like I said, it's in most, in most Christian bookstores as well. Excellent. Again, the book is called simply Five Money Conversations to Have with Your Kids at Every Age and Every Stage and uh, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through their website at themoneycouple.com. That's themoneycouple.com. And our thanks to Scott and Bethany Palmer for being with us tonight and offering those insights. The book, by the way, newly published by our friends at Thomas Nelson. A W Publishing is actually the cover, but uh, Thomas Nelson is the, is the main publisher. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
A recent survey conducted by Thomson Reuters of working professional women across the country discovered three top concerns shared by most working women. Concerns over the glass ceiling, equal pay, and work-life balance. Perhaps to that list we could add things like the challenge of building a support network and fear of failure in a male-dominated business world. After all, the men seem to have the good old boys network. How come the ladies don't have a good old girls network? Well, with some insights and answers to this question, we're joined now by a very special guest, Lisa Lambert. Lisa is managing partner with the Wesley Group. Prior to that, she served as vice president at Intel Capital, and she's the founder of Upward, uniting professional women, accelerating relationships and development. Lisa, great to have some time with you today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm looking forward to the discussion. What do you think about that list? Uh, Reuters determining that a lot of professional women today are not only met with challenges of the glass ceiling, equal pay, work-life balance, but then, too, this challenge of the fear of failure in a male-dominated world and the challenge of building a support network. I think it's absolutely right. In fact, that was the basis of the conception of the idea for Upward. I started it in 2013 for that very reason. Um, Not only the Reuters study, but McKinsey and others have done studies that show that women are disadvantaged in all of those aspects, but one of the biggest ones is the lack of access to informal networks. And so in informal networks, you get access to mentors and sponsors, and you yourself just become more visible because you're connecting with the people that are decision makers and you're building rapport and building relationship and all that matters when a job opportunity comes up and the decision maker has to choose. They're going to choose the person they have the rapport with, the relationship they've gotten to know, and they're not going to choose the person that they haven't. And if women are excluded from those uh, informal networks, then they're going to be disadvantaged. So it is absolutely true. And that's the genesis of Upward, uh, the idea around having a global networking organization for executive women. And it's part of the goal here, too, Lisa, to kind of, I guess, face reality head on. And I ask that question because typically in perhaps a, a somewhat of a prejudicial fashion, um, society will say, well, if women want to advance today, they have to do it through education, hard work, sacrifice, putting their nose to the grindstone, things of that sort. And yet when we see men succeed, we'll oftentimes say, well, he's just taking advantage of the good old boy network. Is this in part recognizing the value that it's, yes, all about hard work and sacrifice and dedication, but then, too, about the value of networking and relationships? Absolutely. I mean, you you need to perform. I mean, that's the baseline. I mean, the very minimum, you need to perform. And I think women are, are very effective at that. I mean, they're heads down in their work group doing their job, and they do that consistently. Women have lots of other responsibilities and duties that they take very seriously, like you know, being a, a wife and being a mother and being involved in the lives uh, that entail being a wife and a mother, you know, and so women do care about that. And so they really do focus their time on being effective at their job. And often the networking piece gets jettisoned. It gets put aside, set on the side burner because you just don't have the free time. And I think what a lot of women are beginning to realize and was the epiphany moment for me when I started Upward is that that's something you can't put on the side. You have to be involved in the informal networks and formal networks that make you visible, that make you relevant, that tell people your story. Because really, 
And when it comes down to it, the people that care about your career most are you and your mother, you know, and not, <laughs> and not the folks that are around you that you may be competing with for jobs. So you have to be involved. You have to be engaged. And I think for women, it's, it's more of a challenge. Uh, I think that the network is the lifeblood of a career. And if you're not spending half of your time on networking, building relationships, making yourself visible, telling people your story, and telling them what you want in terms of your career, then you're not going to have much of a career. And I think that's a, an area that women we all need to work on which is why i started upward and on the upward website and folks can get more information there by going to upwardwomen.org that's upwardwomen.org you kind of summarize it in in three tiers meet up build up and move up help us better understand how those goals all fit into what women can expect to experience when they go to an upward event yeah, so meetups are really the formats that we have for our programs. What Upward does uh, primarily, and this is how we were started, was bringing together executive women. We have nearly 4,000 executive women members across the globe. We actually have seven chapters. The Bay Area chapter is our largest, but we're expanding two new geographies, domestic and international, for folks for purposes of bringing a larger community together. The more vibrant and large the community is, the more you can leverage it to help advance your career. And so the meetups are a physical way for us to engage, right? We do topical discussions, we do workshops, we do seminars and clinics. Uh, it's a way for members in a locale, you know, whether it's the Bay Area chapter or the New York chapter or the Chicago chapter, to come together with expert speakers to learn something important and to network. And every one of our uh, venues, our events, we always have a full hour of networking before and after because that is a big part of building your you know, extending your reach and building a broad portfolio of people that you can tap um, as you need them in your career. And toward that end, the Bay Area chapter, I understand, Lisa, will be having its third annual Upward Dinner event that will be coming to the San Jose Fairmont Hotel on Thursday, February the 9th. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so this is our annual uh, dinner. We do each year a big event, which in, which includes all of our upward members. We certainly invite all of our upward members. And it's the one opportunity where the different chapters and the different locations can all come together, uh, meet one another, really get inspired by our speakers. We've had some amazing speakers in the past. Carol Bartz uh, was a speaker for our first inaugural event. Uh, she was CEO of Autodesk and Yahoo. Uh, Sally Krawcheck was a speaker for us. She was former CEO of a number of large investment banks, uh, Wall Street career. And this year we have a panel of great speakers, CEOs, entrepreneurs that are going to be speaking at our event. Uh, something we've never done before. We generally have, uh, you know, a big corporate speaker who's been CEO of a large publicly traded company. But this year we've got Julie Hartz, who's the founder and CEO of Eventbrite, Britt Moran, who's the founder and CEO of Britain Co., and Miriam Nafasi, who's the founder and CEO of Mentit. So all very accomplished people, all have been on the most powerful women's Forbes list, and uh, they're going to come and speak to our members, uh, get them motivated, get them inspired. You know, how do you build a billion-dollar market cap company? That's what these women have done, and that's what we're going to be talking about at the event. 
So a big part of the evening sounds like connecting and mentoring and toward that uh, toward that degree for those eavesdropping on our conversation that say, you know, Lisa, this sounds like exactly what I've been looking for. Is this dinner coming up on Thursday, February the 9th, open to the public? And if so, what can folks do to order tickets? Yeah, so... The membership for Upward, and it is required that you be an Upward member before you attend our events, uh, but the profile for the members are you have to be a director level, VP level, or C-level uh, woman executive. So that is a bit of a limited demographic, uh, but we did it for a reason. Uh, what we find, if you just look at the U.S., women do enter the workforce at large numbers. Uh, you know, S&P 500 companies, Fortune 500 companies, generally somewhere between 45 and 50% of the professional workforce at that entry level are women. Uh, we're graduating at more, uh, at higher levels, at each level of degree, from the associate all the way up to a doctorate. But what happens is once they get into the workforce, they don't make it to the top for some of the reasons that we talked about earlier, you know, lack of informal networks, lack of sponsors, lack of mentors. And so I specifically targeted the senior executive uh, demographic for the reason of getting more women in those senior positions and the CEO positions and the board positions so that we have more influence um, and more ability to bring up women behind us. So that does limit the scope a bit. So if you are in that demographic, you're an executive woman uh, working in the professional world, not just uh, tech startups uh, or, or large companies, but professionals like attorneys and financiers, uh, et cetera, consultants, are all qualified. So that's really the only restriction. Uh, we've sold 550 uh, tickets so far. Uh, we have capacity for 600-ish, 600, 620. So we have a little bit more room in the next two and a half weeks um, if there's somebody that fits that demographic and would be interested in joining us. And, of course, a great opportunity to get more details about this upcoming third annual Upward Dinner event coming to the San Jose Fairmont Hotel Thursday, February the 9th. As Lisa mentioned, you do need to be a member to participate and to find out more about Upward and how to become a member, simply go to upwardwomen.org. That's upwardwomen.org. And of course, in addition to this event, uh, your website, I understand, Lisa, has got a whole plethora of great resources, information about the history of Upward, and a look at many of the resources and opportunities for women, not in this chapter, but across the country, and as it grows globally, to meet up, build up, and move up. That's exactly right. It's a great place to go because we actually videography, videotape all of our events. Um, I write blog posts on all of our events. And so there's lots and lots of content available on the website for you to get a feel for what it's like to be at an Upward event. And we've also launched this year an online platform. So it's, it's a way of getting the Upward members in an online community, you know, much like you see with LinkedIn, for example, but specifically for our members. So it's a way to connect when we're not at a physical forum where we can actually network. We can actually network online. And that's a big part of our launch on February 9th as well. We're enrolling more of our members into the online community called Who Knows for the Upward membership. So there's lots of information you can find. We have a YouTube channel. We have lots of social media, Twitter, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, etc. Um, so you can find out information to join us for this event while their tickets remain. 
and if not this event, for a future event in the Bay Area or other locales. And again, to get more information, simply log on today to upwardwomen.org. That's upwardwomen.org. And our thanks to founder Lisa Lambert for being with us. Lisa, thanks so much for the time. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.